Find Romans chapter 1 for the last time, at least in this series through the book of Romans, because we're going to finish up Romans chapter 1 this morning. Do you remember the structure of Romans chapter 1? In those first seven verses is Paul's introduction to this church at Rome, a church he had not planted nor had he ever visited, not until this point, but he, of course, had the desire to do it. So it's an introduction to them. And verses 8 through 15, then, he is explaining his eagerness to come to them and to preach the gospel to them. The gospel, as he had already explained, concerning his son, verse 3, who was descended from David according to flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, namely Jesus Christ our Lord. He wanted to preach to the believers in Rome. He wanted to preach to the church the gospel, and he also presumably feeling the obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, wanted to share the gospel with the general population as God would open doors when he got there. And then in verses 16 to 17, he expresses why he's so eager to preach the gospel and why he is so unashamed of the gospel. And that, of course, is that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It includes Jews and Greeks. For in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's very good news, this power from God of salvation, this righteousness from God that we need is such great news because of verse 18 and on. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And verse 18 begins this section of Paul's that runs all the way from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20 in which he doesn't return to the gospel until chapter 3 verse 21 but in these verses he's explaining to everyone teaching everyone that everyone is under sin everyone is under the just wrath and condemnation of God by their very natures they're born into the world in this condition that they deserve the penalty of death that God has placed on sin and they deserve punishment. And so chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to chapter 3 verse 20 is a courtroom scene ultimately in which we are the defendants and Paul is building his case against us and by the time he gets to that end section there's nothing we can say in response. We have no defense. We're just guilty as charged. Every single person. And then the good news will break in. Let's, since it's our last time in this passage, let's just begin in verse 18 and to keep the flow all the way to verse 32. We'll read that, we'll pause, we'll pray, and then we'll bring out the points of this morning's message. Romans 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's just pause now and ask God's blessing on his text. Father, we come before you now and ask that you would give us ears to hear your word, and eyes to see and hearts to understand that you would help us now see what we each need to see as individuals and as a church and and in the end Father we pray that you would encourage us in the good news of Jesus who is right now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father help me as I depend upon your Spirit's gifting to encourage your people. And so I pray to be able to do that. In the name of Jesus, amen. We looked at it last time, two weeks ago. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And oftentimes as a church, we think about wrath as something that is on its way. We know the wrath of God is coming, and that is a time in the future. And we read about that wrath in places like Revelation chapter 6 and beyond. Like there is this time in which God's wrath is going to be poured out on this world in unprecedented fashion. And oftentimes we think about that, or we think about the wrath of God experienced in hell for all eternity. But Paul is saying here in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is right now being revealed. And in what way? Remember we talked about that and we saw that it is, it is in this way that because human beings knew God, knew about God, could see that God was real, that he created everything there is including them and they took that truth and suppressed it in their own unrighteousness and his just wrath was revealed in this way that just as they exchanged him for sin and stuff he gave them up then to what they wanted 
He gives them over to sin and all its tragic consequences. This is what they want. They don't want me, which of course evokes the righteous wrath of God and that he then turns them over to what they want. See, and one thing that Paul is doing here is that he is taking the blame off of God, right, for sin and suffering. And he's putting the blame for sin and suffering exactly where it belongs, on human beings who are in rebellion against him. The tragic consequences of sin and the tragedy of sin is that it is an exchanging of this glorious and good God for the things he made or the things he says no to. That's what makes it tragic. See, the implication of the Bible from the very beginning is that God is good. So even in the beginning, when he created all things, it's repeated. He saw that it was good, it was good, it was good. What he did was good, what he created was good. It was very good until Genesis 3 when human beings exchanged over the glory of the immortal God for sin and stuff. And that has been then the condition of human beings ever since. We, by our nature, and remember, we're not just looking out out at the world and saying, oh yeah, Paul, look at how bad they are. This is us by our very nature. Every single person in this room, Paul included himself, we're all under sin. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God was not hiding from people. He never has been. Creation itself is a form of revelation by God that says, I'm here and I'm good. As a matter of fact, when Paul was preaching to Gentiles now, not Jews who were never exposed to the Old Testament of the Scriptures or to the one true God, in Acts chapter 14, verses 16 to 17, he said this, In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He did good. These were good things that he did to reveal his heart of goodness to his creation with the clear implication that they would see that, like Paul said, and acknowledge him and thank him and honor him, but they didn't do it, right? They do not honor him as God. They do not give thanks to him as God. And therefore, they don't want God. And therefore, God gives them up to what they want, sin and stuff. Therefore, we can't blame God for the tragedy of sin and consequences. The blame goes on human beings who do not want God. You know, young people, I always preach to you because I was you sitting in a church and listening to sermons or probably not listening to sermons till the pastor would say something like young people and then all of a sudden I'd listen just for a minute and then I'd go back to my thoughts. God is revealing himself to you right now. You are hearing his word this morning. You are, you're hearing the gospel of Jesus. 
You have more light about the gospel of Jesus Christ than people have had in centuries past and in places even right now in this world. You are growing up in a church where the gospel is preached to you and you're going to be taking part in all the programs and plans. God's revealing himself to you and you can embrace him and trust in him. But if you reject him, and you follow the path of sin and stuff, friends, you, have, you can't one day when you're embracing the consequences of that rejection then turn and blame God. That was the choice you freely made. You won't be able to stand in the judgment and say, I didn't know or I hadn't heard or this is your fault, God. You will have no one to blame but you. Because God was willing and able to save you from your sins and to let you enjoy Him. Don't embrace the lie. Don't embrace the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. That's the lie. The lie is the good's all here. Look at this. You can do this. You can do that. Having this freedom. Do that. And you're, you're embracing the lie of the devil. Turn from that and cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. We by nature, what Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 1 is that all of us by nature are God rejectors. That's the sad reality of the human state. We exchange God over for sin and stuff. And therefore God in his justice turns us over to what we want. How did the world respond to Jesus when he arrived? I mean the incarnate Son of God. John records for us in John 3. Actually, you can turn there. It's pretty easy to find. John chapter 3. And I want to begin reading in verse 16. God's ultimate revelation was in his Son. When he sent his Son in the world, he's speaking to the world through his Son. And he's calling the world to a relationship with him to find ultimate joy and peace and love and acceptance and satisfaction in his son. That's what he's doing as he reveals himself through his son. In verse 16, of course, we know this first couple verses. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Catch that. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But listen to this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. That's Jesus and the light of God through him. And tragically, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, that's the nature of every human being, isn't it? The nature, your nature was this, that you loved darkness more than light. This is Paul's point in Romans 1. This is John's point in including this in John 3, that by nature, we love sin and stuff and we don't want God. Can you see that? So when the light of the world steps in, how does the world respond to it? We don't like it. We love the darkness, whether we're willing to openly admit that or not. 
And verse 20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. He runs from it. This is why, by the way, uh, people still in their sins, especially kids who grew up in Christian homes, when they go into the world and they go into full-blown rebellion, they don't want to hear about the Bible. They don't want to come to church. They don't want you talking to them about the light. Why? Because they're in the condition of Romans 1. They love the darkness, and that light just shines onto the darkness. I know. I was there in that position. But, verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light... Catch this now, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, when you see something, someone doing something contrary to their nature, namely this, coming to the light of Jesus, what do you know in that moment? That those works of them coming to the light, that's being carried on and by God. This is why, Christian, we instinctually pray for people and we say things like this, God Save them from their sins. Change their hearts. Draw them to yourself. Whatever you say. Cause them to be born again. Give them new life. I don't know what you... You say something to that effect because you know unless God does that, they will just continue down the path of darkness and God rejection. You see, what Romans 1 is teaching us, friends, in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is that we need new hearts. That salvation entails the forgiveness of sins through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is true. But it also is that we need new hearts. Hearts that no longer exchange God over for the things of this world, but exchange the things of this world over for God, you see. People that come to the light to have their darkness forgiven and transformed. When somebody comes to the light, it shows that God has done that work in them. That's why when we see people being saved, we, we say, that's an answer to prayer. God's worked in that person. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened because we know all of our natural conditions. So back in Romans 1, God is in his righteousness and in his justice. He's turning people over to what they want. What they want is not him, it is sin and stuff. And of course, as we showed last time, that results in the sin of idolatry. They don't want God, so verse 22 and 23, they create gods of their own making. Sometimes in very crude fashions have they done in times and places in history around the world where they actually take a, a, an animal and, and make an idol of that animal and say, this is God. For us in America, it's a little more sophisticated in the West. We have all different kinds of idols expressed in covetousness and materialism. Because as John Calvin rightly said, your hearts and my heart, our hearts are idol factories, always producing idols. They're designed to worship something. Of course, they're designed by God to worship God. But when he isn't the object of worship, we create for ourselves things to worship by our nature. That's what we do. And so that because of that, God gives them over and then that begins to express itself in forms of sin like in verses 24 through 20. 
seven of sexual immorality. That rejection of God, giving people over to what they want, will naturally express itself in sexual immorality. That's what he's saying. I mean, look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And that's a word for sexual immorality. That's what I'm calling it because in this context, it's clear because then he goes on to say, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, you see. He gives us over to what we want, and we don't want God's good design in sexual relations, male and female in the confines of covenant relationship. We have passions that break out of that and don't feel that sufficient or satisfying or will bring me happiness. So what I'm going to do then is I'm going to pursue gratification and pleasure in all different ways but what God has said. So we are all by nature sexually impure and you'll notice in verse 25, it's, it's a form of idolatry itself, isn't it? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And sexual activity can be a form of worship to God in the way he's designed it and in the confines of what he's designed it, or it can be a worship of ourselves or others and a dishonoring of the body. It is nothing more than a form of idolatry. And every time, friend, you look at a computer screen with images that you should not be looking at or a phone, you are, verse 23, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. It is idolatry. You'll notice in verse 25 in context with just sexual immorality generally he says they exchange truth about God for a lie and there is no bigger lie in our culture I don't think than the lie that comes from the devil that says that the way God has designed things in sexual relationships between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage the lie says that's not enough that is God being a killjoy you deserve happiness and you will find happiness in all these other expressions of sexual immorality and the problem is nobody ever finds the happiness there do they they find pleasure temporarily sexual immorality is destructive in so many different ways and even now in the form of Internet pornography, secular brain scientists are saying this is destructive to human beings. I mean, this rewires their brain mapping. It's doing significant damage to people. And it's ruining relationships and it's ruining marriages and it's ruining children. And sexual immorality is destructive. It's a lie. Don't buy it. You know, one thing you have to keep in mind when it, when it comes to God is that he is a good God and he has designed things in a good way because he's a good God. And that his law is for our good. Do you know that? Like in other words, if you follow my law, says God, this is the best for you. This is, this is going, this ends up the best for you. This is going to bring you the most satisfaction and joy and happiness that you could have in this life 
following God, no matter what suffering or that you're going through, when you're walking in the truth and the light of the law law of the Lord, you know that that feels far better to the Christian and you experience far more blessing than when you turn from it in sin, right? Do you remember when God in the Old Testament had his people there in the wilderness and and in uh, Deuteronomy, uh, after that first generation died out that all rejected God, they were Romans 1 people. And they all died out except for a couple. And, and then you had the rest of the people there, the next generation, and God has them there in the regiving of the law. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 24, this is what he said. The Lord God, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. That's the truth. The lie is that God's law isn't for our good. Isn't that exactly what the devil said to Eve in the garden? God's withholding something from you is what the devil says. That's the lie. Don't embrace it. One of the biggest ways it's expressed is in the realm of sexual immorality. And I'm glad he began in verses 24 and 25 with sexual immorality generally before he got to homosexuality in 26 and 27. Because I think in this area, Christians need a reality check that we are all sexually immoral to a degree and broken in that area and failing in that area and falling short in that area. It isn't just uh, homosexuals that God is angry at. This is why Jesus said, Matthew 5, 27 to 28, to people who would have said, oh, those sexually immoral people of the world, yeah, let's, let's stone them to death. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, here's a test, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart, which every man uh, hearing Jesus at that time went, well, okay, um, yeah. It goes right to the heart. Sexual sin is a rejection of God's good ways and the good ways that are designed for our good and it is an evidence, friends, that a culture has been turned over then to the wrath of God. Do we not see sexual immorality as the number one vice and besetting sin of our culture? Well, guess what? That's evidence that Roman 1 is true. And then he gets into verses 26 and 27 which clearly refer to homosexuality. He says, for this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. I feel the need and feel compelled to tell Christians it's not unloving uh, to say, as Paul says here, that homosexuality is sinful. Use the biblical words. It's shameless. These are shameless acts. These are dishonorable desires. And I know that people... Christian people struggle with same-sex attraction and that some are being told that, you know what, God wants your happiness, so go ahead and indulge in that and pursue it. But remember what we said about a good God who gives his good law. But that isn't what you should be indulging in. That that, like any other sin, you are battling to put to death. The problem with our culture is they've made your sexual preference and sexual desires the number one attribute of who you are, your identity. And therefore, the very thought of denying yourself sexual desires that you have is unheard of in our culture. 
Well, it's only an unloving God or self-righteous Christians that would tell you you can't have everything you want, especially in the core of your identity, which is, you know, how you, uh, you know, what you're attracted to or who you're attracted to. But again, it's just a lie. The truth is that it is a sin. It is an expression of rebellion against God. And I think what makes homosexuality and why he doesn't just hone in on uh, sexual immorality generally, he comes into homosexuality as he's saying, he uses that word nature or natural relations. Because what he's saying is, here's the evidence that God has turned people over to wrath. Not only are they sexually immoral in a natural way, which would be a man and a woman, but they are sexually immoral in an unnatural way. It's almost, to me, I look at it like this. It's a, it's a double fist in the face of God. Because not only is it God, I'm not gonna obey your moral law, I'm not even going to obey your natural law, you see. And what is he building? He's showing us so that we can see and understand just how far short of the glory of God human beings have fallen. We can see it everywhere around us. And then in verses 28 to 32, of course, it is the floodgates of sin that are flung open He says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's what they called in Paul's day, and we call them now a vice list. A list of sins or vices of what humanity falls into. And Paul says, as a result of people not acknowledging God and not thanking God, not worshiping God, not wanting God, he gives them over to this debased mind. That's a mind that does what ought not to be done. It's a mind that wants to do what ought not to be done. It is a mind that calls good evil and evil good. And as a result of that debased mind, people are filled to the full with all kinds of unrighteousness that expresses itself in different ways. Did you see yourself or any of your besetting sins, Christian, in that vice list? I hope you did. I think Paul's design was so that every one of us could read those things and see ourselves there. I have that in me. I have that in me. Some of you, before you were following Christ, you could list those and say, that was just the way I lived on a daily basis. He says that though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, that's the just penalty of death. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is a phrase that haunts me. Every time I'm watching TV and I'm watching the celebration of sin, we ought not to do that. Don't give hearty approval to those who are practicing such things. It's as bad as doing them. Perhaps even worse. The floodgates of sin are opened. The foundational and truth of our condition as human beings pre-Christ in our lives 
is that we are sinners to the core. We're God rejectors, lust pursuers, idolatrous people who do not want God, who love darkness rather than light. We want sin and stuff. Now, that's how, when I say the natural condition of somebody, that's how somebody is born into this world with that fallen heart. And we'll talk more about that in the book of Romans, so we won't go into that in detail here. But let me bring out some good news now. If you are right now rejecting God, you're rejecting Christ, you're pursuing sin with your life, you don't want God, you're suppressing the truth about Him, whatever, however that looks, know this, that you can right now turn from that sin and you can cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the good news. That Jesus was born into this world just like you and lived as a human being like you except he didn't have a Romans 1 nature. His entire life from infancy was one of not pushing God away but seeking his father with all his heart. He always obeyed. He always worshiped his heavenly father. He was perfectly pure in every way. He had perfectly good desires and motives at all times. He was filled with righteousness. We're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, not Jesus. From the very beginning, the righteous one was filled with all manner of righteousness. He expressed it in his life from his heart. And the good news is this, that he went to the cross and paid for all of your Romans' wantedness and absorbed it on the cross so that, like we said, it is finished, it is finished. You can turn to him, nothing more to do but to turn to him and place your trust in him and you receive from him the righteousness you need, the forgiveness you need, the transformation you need, the spirit to stay with you. You get from him eternal life. You can do that right now. Turn to Jesus. Just look to him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Paul will say in Romans 10, will be saved. And there's good news in this Christian if you are right now in Christ. Let me address you, most of us in this room. In Christ, you know what it is to be saved. You know you're saved. I love 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. It says this, Or do you not know, says Paul, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Hear this. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. There, we're just going right through Romans 1, right? Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God because God saves Romans 1 people. That's the only people there are to save. And that is something we rejoice in. Remember what I said two weeks ago, one danger in reading Romans 1? It's to still see yourself in that condition. That's no longer you, Christian. Understand this. 
He's explaining that by nature, this is who you were. This is what you have been saved from through the good news of his son, Jesus. Things have changed for you now in Christian. Therefore, you must change the way you do things. As a result of the fact now that you have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, now you live not in a Romans 1 way, but in a pursuit of righteousness every day of your life. This is what we do. We forsake sin and we obey God. Just like Paul will get to in Romans 6 verses 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's what you used to do, but don't do that anymore. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life because you have. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, Christian, since you are not under the law but under grace. Boy, that's good news as we walk through this life with a, still a sinful nature attached to our new nature and our new self. And as we fail and fall, don't worry, sin will not have dominion over you because you're no longer in Romans 1, right? Now you're under grace. The wrath of God now has been satisfied in Christ at the cross, so you're not under the wrath of God any longer, Christian. You are now under the grace of God, and the grace of God always comes with forgiveness and mercy to his people, and it it comes with daily provision of power to live in righteousness, you see. This is our condition now, and it's the opposite of Romans 1 that has happened in a person that God has saved. We exchange the lie of the devil now and the lie of sin and the idolatry of our hearts. And we exchange all those things for the glory of the immortal God. We now honor him as God and we thank him as God and we worship him as our God and because we love God. Now without, what was the song we sang? Without warning, deserving, God has become our treasure now by his work. Remember what we said in John 3? For us, it's evidence that God has worked in us and what Christian in this room would not give all the glory for their salvation to God alone? Your power working in me? He has worked in that. It shows that it, that it is clearly the works of God that are carried out in this. And hear this in Philippians 1, 6, friends, where Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The salvation he's begun in you now will be completed, Romans 8. All those who have been justified are glorified in the mind of God. These are wonderfully good news, isn't it? It's just wonderfully good news. And the more we investigate the gospel and the more we walk through the book of Romans beginning in chapter two, Lord willing, next week, we're gonna see more and more good news for sinners like us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for salvation. Help us now this week to live as those who used to be Romans 1 but now are no longer Romans 1. Let us live this week as Romans 6 Christians and Romans 8 Christians, Romans 12 Christians. I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.